Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. The war in Ukraine so far is our subject this hour. The angle of observation is realist, so-called. It's a way of thinking about world affairs that is founded on the vital interest of nation states like security and survival in an often tragic arena of rise and fall competition. Steve Walt from the Kennedy School at Harvard is among the most respected and quoted of realists. He's been coaching us in conversation for 20 years since George W. Bush prepared to invade Iraq. Not in the U.S. interest, Steve Walt and the realists declared flatly. The war in Ukraine has been more complicated. Not in Russia's interest or Putin's, Steve Walt thought, before it happened. Since then, the question has been whether realist thinking ever caught up with what Putin was doing and why. Was he really feeling threatened by NATO's expansion toward Russia? Was Putin bent on a new Slavic empire? Was he out of touch with reality? Steve, what if the meaning of this war is in two Big surprises. First, the courage, cohesion, the pride of the Ukrainian people, but also the psychopathic cruelty of Putin, of course, but men lost in the frenzy of war. I don't think those are the defining features of the war. Certainly the heroism and uh, nationalism, national pride being shown by the Ukrainians is remarkable. It was not fully anticipated by the Russians at all. I think that was a huge surprise to them. It shouldn't be a complete surprise to us, of course, because the United States had been arming and training Ukraine for a number of years now, and we were aware that you know, they were trying to create the capabilities to defend their independence if necessary. I also don't think the cruelty that we're seeing is going to be a defining feature because, sadly, this is not uncommon. This is Mm. something that happens frequently in wars, and particularly uh, in wars where major powers think their vital interests are at stake. It's deplorable. It ought to be condemned. If it were possible to hold those responsible accountable, we should try to do that. But that's, uh, you know, not the only thing that's going on here. That shouldn't be something that does surprise us. It's obvious to us that Putin lost his vicious war, but will we ever conclude that somebody won it? It's, I think, too early to declare, you know, sort of winners and losers. There's no question that if Putin expected a swift and rapid victory here, then that goal is not going to be achieved. Uh, And certainly, I think he didn't anticipate the costs, uh, both the military costs he has paid and the economic costs that have been imposed by sanctions. I think in those cases, uh, there was clearly a miscalculation. But on the other hand, the end game of this war could end up being a Ukraine that is permanently neutral. Uh, Russian control over Crimea and portions of the east, possibly including a land bridge connecting the Donbass to Crimea, and some other understandings about minority rights, which Putin has long declared he was serious about. So the cost may be much greater. The damage to Ukraine is tragic. But at the end of this, he may look back and say, I paid a larger price than I expected, but I still think it was worth it. Uh, I'm not suggesting that that justifies what he did at all, but it's, I think, too early to say that this is a massive defeat for Russia in the short to medium term. I think one can talk then about what the longer term consequences for Russia may be, and I think those are likely to be uh, quite negative. I'm still wondering who won the argument about this war and its purpose. 
From my standpoint, it's been a war to discredit war itself, to discount the incredible investment we put into weaponry. The alternative, as you say, was to neutralize Ukraine on the model of Austria during the Cold War. Some significant piece of our government, seemed to me, wanted to risk flipping Ukraine to the West. Many Ukrainians did too, and Putin went nuts. And here we are. I think you want to avoid phrases like went nuts. And yes, I agree with you. I think that we were quite cavalier and going back many years now in thinking that we could begin expanding NATO, declare that that was going to be an open-ended process, that uh, there was essentially no limit to it as well, ignored repeated Russian objections, including by politicians other than Vladimir Putin, as to what we were doing. And then, of course, ignoring the very strong Russian response in both 2008 and again in 2014 when we began trying to bring Ukraine and Georgia into the so-called Western fold. We blindly assumed, and it wasn't just Americans, we blindly assumed that Russia would never do anything about this. They were too weak. Ultimately, we could deter them. Um, you know, the Germans were perfectly willing to keep buying Russian energy because they never thought this would actually turn into something really serious. And in that sense, mm. I think we did not take the possibility seriously that Russia would take the kind of action that they have now done. That was naive on our part. That doesn't justify in any way what Russia has done. But if you don't understand why it happened, right, you're not likely to understand, you know, both how to get out of it and what mistakes we may have made in the past. But surely there are people, lots of them, who say now it wasn't about his feeling insecure at NATO's advance. It was some larger plan or some larger dream he had of a greater Russia, a Slavic empire. I mean, I'm not sure we've got the cause straight yet. Well, I think there is a number of things going on here. I think the evidence that NATO enlargement was part of what produced this is really overwhelming. And it makes logical sense, right? The world's most powerful military alliance keeps moving closer and closer to Russian territory. There have been uh, various acts of political instability or upheaval that have removed autocratic governments, the so-called color revolutions. And Russia may exaggerate the degree to which we were involved in instigating or supporting those sorts of things. But if you're an autocratic government, you have to worry when that starts happening nearby. It's often said now in the West that Putin wasn't really worried about NATO enlargement, wasn't worried about a military attack. He was worried about being overthrown. Well, those two things are related, that if we keep moving democracies closer and closer to Russia, including into places that are connected to Russia historically, that's going to be seen as part of a broader campaign to gradually impose or encourage a Western-style overthrow in Moscow. We might think that would be a wonderful thing if it happened, but you could understand why a Russian leader, particularly an autocrat, might regard that as threatening. One final point here that is often forgotten, right? There was a, a nuclear dimension to this. You know, we had talked for a long time about putting missile defenses in Eastern Europe and kept claiming that they were directed at Iran. They really weren't directed at Russia. But of course, the Russians were always worried about our technological superiority and the possibility that we might be getting some kind of first strike capability. And if that sounds crazy, let's just remember that back in the 1970s and 1980s, Americans worried a lot about whether Russia was going to get a first strike capability. Top U.S. officials, people like Richard Pipes, Paul Nitze, 
published articles warning about a Russian first strike capability. Well, if we can worry about that in the old Cold War days, Russia, much weaker economically, technologically falling behind the West in a variety of ways, was worried about that too. So I think there was a legitimate set of security concerns animating what Putin was doing, even if, of course, the response to those security concerns was both immoral, illegal, wrong, and ultimately, I think, counterproductive. Two weeks ago, we marked the anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s moral denunciation of the war in Vietnam. And I wondered, adding moral to realism would have kept us out of Vietnam, simply putting the interests of the Vietnamese people ahead of the overrated interests of states, and would have been well out of Southeast Asia. How is moral realism or pragmatic realism, realism that works, how's that as an improvement on the realist bumper sticker? That's a great question. And, you know, realists are often accused of being either immoral or amoral, and I think it's an unfair charge. I think realists are very mindful of the tragic nature of politics, the unpredictability of war itself, the destructive qualities of war. So while we recognize that war is always possible, uh, we're also, I think, well aware of the consequences and therefore that you should not be waging them for anything other than absolutely vital interests, not for idealistic reasons, uh, not on a whim, not as part of some larger political crusade, particularly in parts of the world that you don't understand very well. The difference, though, Steve, is that the MLK version puts the moral question first, maybe first, second, third, and fourth, and the strategic so-called, I mean, saving South Vietnam from the government they would have elected under Ho Chi Minh, that was confused with a great strategic interest, and it wasn't. That's correct. But the problem with putting morality first is that immediately inclines you or puts you on the slippery slope to sort of wars to eliminate evil, to unlimited wars, to wars that are not fought for narrow national interests, narrow security reasons, but rather wars to eradicate whoever you think the problem is. So to get it back to Ukraine, can we end this war? Well, it's going to be very difficult to compromise now. If Joe Biden or Zelensky were to propose a peace deal that gave Russia anything, that made any concession to Russian concerns, they would face a firestorm of criticism for compromising with this evil government. So I think what King is suggesting is correct. One ought to have the moral concern front and center, but one ought to recognize that sometimes putting that front and center may incline you to the kind of crusading that gets millions of people killed. You're bringing up Vietnam is actually quite an interesting illustration of this. You know, we're rightly very condemning of Vladimir Putin launching a war to try and determine Ukraine's geopolitical alignment. The United States in the 1960s and 1970s fought a war in Indochina to essentially try to determine South Vietnam's geopolitical alignment, to prevent it from being unified by North Vietnam becoming part of the communist world. Of course, we were willing to spend the lives of over 50,000 Americans and the lives of several million people in Indochina to try and shape South Vietnam's geopolitical alignment. Now, do you think John F. Kennedy was irrational? 
was wild-eyed, was crazy, was Lyndon Johnson crazy, irrational, was Richard Maybe. Nixon? Well, I don't think any of those adjectives apply to those. They were wrong. They were misguided. They were maybe misinformed in a variety of ways. But you wouldn't want to characterize them as sort of crazy, paranoid, and certainly not as you know, wild-eyed expansionists seeking to conquer all of Southeast Asia. They were driven by a set of concerns about what losing Vietnam might mean for America's overall security and geopolitical position. And I might add, we did a lot of really horrific things in that war using napalm, Agent Orange, etc. That was the United States, the land of the free. I'm perfectly comfortable condemning what Russia is doing in Ukraine. It ought to be condemned, but we ought to recognize that it's not a unique event historically and uh, retain a certain level of humility about it too. Coming up, the real Joe Biden, strategist, commander, and commentator-in-chief. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. Our guest, Steve Walt, is a capital R realist in the study of international relations. The emphasis is on strategic needs, nation by nation. The first rule of realism might be not to neglect your core interests or your neighbors without expecting a fight or risking a tragedy. In the Ukraine case, the question is out there, do realists undervalue human factors like the spirit among Ukrainians and their president, Zelensky, but also the gangster element in Vladimir Putin? I don't think so. I mean, uh, realism doesn't put a lot of emphasis on the role of individuals. It's more of a theory about sort of the basic nature of world politics. And certainly individuals have mattered here. Uh, Certainly Zelensky's remarkable abilities to rise to an occasion and appeal to the sympathies and support of the world to rally his own people. Uh, I do think realists have a pretty high appreciation for nationalism as a powerful force in world affairs, reluctant of people to live under others' thumbs. I think that's one of the reasons we were wary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, that we didn't know what we were getting into and we were not going to be greeted as liberators uh, by everyone in Iraq. I think that same appreciation has made us skeptical about the long American campaign in Afghanistan. So the fact that the Ukrainians did not want to be ruled by uh, Moscow doesn't really surprise us, even though the sort of vigor of the response and the effectiveness of the response, I think, has surprised almost everyone, and, of course, uh, the role of inspirational leaders such as Zelensky. Pick up on the surprises, Steve Walt. What has surprised the realists most, including the apparent incompetence of the Russian military, tanks tipped over onto their turrets, a screw-up with what effect? Well, to be perfectly candid, I did not expect a war to break out until two, three weeks before it actually did. I thought, in part, there would be a much more serious effort at diplomacy, a much more serious negotiation. And there was a lot of talks and various exchanges, but the United States and NATO never took Ukrainian membership off the table or suggested that was negotiable. And if you believe that was the principal sticking point for Vladimir Putin, then, you know, I think at that point, 
point, the war did in fact become inevitable. I think many realists were not that surprised by the poor performance of the Russian military because you know, there's a long history, I think, of America exaggerating Russian military capabilities uh, sort of for threat inflation purposes. They fought worse than I would have expected, but I didn't expect a lightning-like operation. So I guess I'm only slightly surprised by that. Like everyone else, I think I've been surprised by the rapid and vigorous Western response, and especially the reaction of, say, Germany. But I shouldn't have been. That was a, just a blunder on my part, because, of course, it's entirely consistent with the realist view that states, you know, the balances of power operate, that when states see a major threat emerging or a new threat or they have to reevaluate a threat, they tend to balance against it. They don't jump on the bandwagon and join forces with the threatening power. They unify to contain its effects. And that's precisely what we're seeing happen. Happen, uh, with NATO in a way that I think many people would have underestimated beforehand. What surprised me, among other things, is how precisely the U.S. military intelligence can read the mind of the Russian military people, even their talk to each other. This is something you don't see people talk about very much. But I think, first of all, this is a success story for American intelligence, uh, which has had some black eyes over the last 20 or 30 years. But, you know, they saw what was happening. They interpreted it properly. They correctly challenged skepticism elsewhere in Europe that Russia was really serious about all of this. We don't know exactly how much electronic surveillance was involved in this, uh, you know, how deeply we may have penetrated into various parts of the Soviet communications infrastructure. So, you know, that's obviously not going to be revealed openly because we may still want to rely upon those capabilities. But yes, in this case, the intelligence community and the Biden administration had a pretty accurate read on certainly the potential for Russian military action and also the likelihood that it might happen. Steve, what have we seen of the real Joe Biden of significance here? I mean, there was the famous nine-word Freudian slip, it seemed. He said, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. And of course, Putin took it as confirmation of what this war was all about, that the West is still trying to break Russia down and, of course, get rid of him. I'm also wondering if Biden revealed a sort of unipolar American mentality that has not read the recent headlines. I mean, do we still have another agenda for a world that seems pretty well fed up with our interventions? I'm inclined to agree with that. I mean, I don't think the Biden administration has a sort of well-formulated plan for regime change in Russia. You know, it might be something they might wish for, but I don't think there's an active campaign underway to try and bring the Russian government down even now. I do think that comment by Biden that, you know, this man must go does reflect uh, a certain sort of moralistic tendency in American foreign policy that, you know, we can decide who the good leaders are, who the bad leaders are, and name them and shame them and eventually drive them out of power. Barack Obama uh, did the same thing when he said, you know, Assad must go in Syria. And that may have been a you know, morally desirable outcome, yeah, but it was not something that we could bring about and, you know, probably got in the way of trying to stop that war before it had really uh, expanded to the tragedy that it became. In a sense, Joe Biden is a very 
traditional mainstream view uh, forged in, you know, the Cold War and the immediate aftermath of the United States as the embodiment, the leader, the evangelist for the so-called liberal world order. And the statements uh, like that are, I think, entirely consistent with that worldview. Whether or not that worldview is really going to be appropriate for the world we're heading into, I think, is a really interesting question. But it sounds uncorrected by the retrospect on the Iraq war for which he voted. I mean, what has he learned, do you suppose? You could argue, of course, he did learn a number of things. He, I think, was early on a skeptic about the American effort to create a sort of Western-style democracy in Afghanistan. And, you know, from very early in the Obama administration, he was the voice saying, you know, that's beyond our means. We should focus on counterterrorism and, uh, you know, light footprint. And he then delivered on that, you know, many years later when he became president and took us out of Afghanistan. So I think he has learned, you know, that our ability to do social engineering in the developing world, especially with military force, is quite limited, uh, maybe non-existent. But Europe, in a sense, is different. I think he does sort of buy into the, uh, you know, this is the free world. These are our fellow democracies. He made that very clear in the campaign that he was going to restore ties to the members of NATO who had had their feathers ruffled and worse by Donald Trump. He had been a backer of Ukraine all along. Right? He was the principal interlocutor in the Obama administration with the Ukraine government. Right. And so, you know, I think he was fully on board with this idea of trying to nurture Ukraine as a closer American partner over time. Certainly never skeptical about the idea that maybe someday Ukraine should be part of NATO. Uh, you know, remember that pledge was made in 2008 and the Obama administration and the Trump administration never took that pledge away. Uh, and I think Biden was fully on board with that. In that sense, the sort of, you know, there's two worlds, there's a free world and there's a non-free world and our principal partners are in Europe, the fellow democracies. I think that's very much part of Biden's worldview. And when that seems to be jeopardized by Russian actions, and particularly by brutal Russian actions, it's really easy for him to go in front of a microphone and say something like what he said. Hmm. More surprising to me is that Victoria Nuland, sort of a point person for intervention and regime change, specifically in the land of of the color revolutions is the number four person in his State Department. Certainly it's evidence that a point that many of us have made before that doesn't matter how wrong you've been in the past, you can still rise to new positions of authority in the, in the U.S. <laughs> government. And I think whatever her many virtues may be, she is also a U.S. official who played a key role back in 2014 in the, the events that eventually led to the loss of Crimea and the fomenting of an active war in the eastern provinces in Ukraine and, you know, may have been done with the best of intentions. But the outcome of this was, I think, quite damaging to Ukraine and obviously to Russian-American relations as well. And again, it's one of the things that has led us to the situation we are in today. What does it tell us, six weeks into the war, that China has awarded a sort of critical victory to Putin and to Russia? But also, what should Americans conclude from the pretty stark post-Ukraine alignment of giant nations, they used to be called the BRICS, Brazil, China, India, Iran, others, with Russia, not with America and Europe. Whoever thought that the BRICS would be a Guinness? 
<laughs> Let me come back to that one in a second. I mean, you started with the, the question of China, and I think China uh, is a really interesting example here. You could argue that China had missed an extraordinary opportunity here, that this was a moment when China could have adopted a different position and said, look, this is a fight among Western powers, uh, including Russia, who can't manage their own affairs, who are constantly getting into these quarrels, real tragedy. Uh, we here in the East, you know, we have a different way of dealing with others. We're peaceful. We don't start wars. We don't fight in wars. Uh, we believe in state sovereignty, etc. So we will mediate this. We have good ties with Moscow. We have growing ties uh, with Europe. Let us settle this. We want to come in, you know, like... Uh, Teddy Roosevelt after the Russo-Japanese War and, and say, we'll settle this one, we'll mediate. And that, I think, would have been a, a remarkable diplomatic move, particularly if they'd been able to do so successfully. If China had been able to do it or we had been able to engineer it? If China had offered to mediate this and settle it and been able to pull it off, that would have been you know, an extraordinary statement about you know, this being the Chinese century. You don't want to follow America because it only gets you into trouble. You don't want to follow Russia. That gets you into trouble. You want to follow our approach to world policy. They didn't do that, but it seems to me that might have been a missed opportunity. From Beijing's point of view, this war is, of course, a distraction uh, from matters in Asia and the East. It has occupied all sorts of bandwidth in the United States and in Europe, which means there's less focus on what's happening in Asia. And secondly, Putin may end up succeeding, not in the getting the outcome he may have initially hoped for, certainly at a price far greater than he expected to pay. But in terms of the core objectives of preventing uh, Ukraine from ever becoming part of NATO and retaining control over the Russian-speaking areas in the east and Crimea, he may end up with that outcome. And then the final point here is that, you know, in some sects, over the last five, six years, Xi Jinping has been betting more on Russia. That partnership has gotten deeper. I think they've met over 30 times in this period. And it's very hard for Xi Jinping ever to admit he's wrong mm. about anything. And for him to have adopted a different course at this point, to have been actively critical, to have worked against Russia, or maybe even to offer to mediate, would have been an acknowledgement that he'd made a bad bet. I'd love to hear your, your little bit of advice to Xi Jinping. You've made a mistake here, sir. Time to reconsider. I think Xi Jinping has made a number of mistakes, and you could argue that the major powers are now in a relentless competition to see uh, which one can make the most mistakes. Certainly over the past 25 years, the United States has made a number of really catastrophic blunders. Uh, we're still okay. We are a big and powerful uh, and very secure country, so we may survive all of these mistakes, but we've certainly hurt ourselves. I think in the last five to 10 years, China has been gradually moving away from the strategy that had been working very effectively, the sort of peaceful rise, build up power and strength and wealth at home, remain on good terms with neighbors as much as possible, and adopting a much more belligerent, ambitious, openly revisionist rhetoric in a variety of ways and had achieved the predictable reaction of alarming many countries in Asia, alarming countries in Europe who, you know, five to 10 years ago were perfectly happy to do business with China as much as they possibly could, alarming some of the countries in Africa with whom they were trying to court through the Belt and Road Initiative. The advice I'd give Xi Jinping is, you know, cool your jets a little bit and start trying to manage relations in 
and others in ways that are not as threatening to them. And of course, as I said before, a slightly different policy towards Ukraine, I think, would have yielded big diplomatic benefits. Your other part of this question was, what about the rest of the world, the so-called BRICS? The fact that India did not support it, abstained on the General Assembly resolution condemning the invasion, as did South Africa, as did a number of other countries in Asia, as did Bolivia. Much of the rest of the world, particularly in the global south, does not gravitate towards our framing of this as, you know, the free world versus dictatorship, the free world versus autocracy. That's sometimes because some of these governments are autocracies, uh, not true of South Africa and India, by the way. But the way in which we see this conflict is not the way it is seen by others, particularly countries that have been the objects of European or American military action in the past. The second thing here, of course, is just to remember, and this is, you know, back to Realism 101, is that other countries have their own interests and they have to calculate them very carefully. So Israel has been very careful about how it has responded to this. It voted for the General Assembly resolution, but it has not been openly condemning Russia. They've been keeping those ties open. It's not participating in the economic sanctions. And that's in part because they have a complicated relationship with Russia. They need to be able to cooperate with Russia regarding the ongoing fighting in Syria, things like that. So Israel's pursuing its own national interests as it perceives them. Same is true of India. India is a democracy, has been moving closer to the United States in recent years, but India also gets a substantial amount of its military hardware from Russia, is dependent upon them for spare parts and resupply, things like that. And so India has adopted a much more nuanced approach toward the fighting in Ukraine than you might have expected otherwise. And I think that's true of many other countries as well. But you're making me wonder, who could we count on in the world in general And why not Israel or India, for example, not a party to the fight, but to simply speak up on the moral issue of naked aggression, illegal aggression, and utter brutality in things like the train station bombing? Again, because there are possible strategic consequences in both of those cases for taking a a really openly confrontational approach towards uh, what Russia is doing. I mean, just simple calling murder, murder. And I don't mean to be too high horse about it, but simply keeping up with the moral score before the whole world. Countries often are more inclined to engage in you know, moral condemnation when they don't think there's any negative mm. consequences for doing so. That's true of us in a number of cases. To pick a, another contemporary example, the United States is still providing various forms of tacit support for Saudi Arabia, which is waging uh, a war in Yemen. Yeah, we've talked about it, right. Right. Up until recently, you'd argue that that was the greatest humanitarian tragedy on the planet up until Ukraine. And Yes, American officials have occasionally made sort of mildly critical comments at various points, but when push has come to shove, they have declined to end our relationship or put any significant pressure on Saudi Arabia because we thought the consequences would be greater than the benefits. I'm not defending this, but I do find this a a pretty familiar behavior in world politics. Is there a case for a war crimes trial in these 
on-camera brutal inhumanity of the Russian war. Is there any way to have another Nuremberg trial? That's very unlikely. There is certainly a case for it, and it's worth noting that the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has already opened an investigation into possible war crimes, and I think that's entirely appropriate. The difficulty, of course, is that we don't have a mechanism to put Putin or Russian officials, you know, in the dock. Let's remember that the United States is not even a party to the Rome mm-hmm. Convention that creates the International Criminal Court. We have a rather selective approach to that particular institution. But in order to face prosecution by the International Criminal Court or to be put in the dock at some kind of Nuremberg-like tribunal, you have to be removed from power. Either you're militarily defeated and the victors take over or you're overthrown by your own government and then they give you up. Those are the only people who have been prosecuted by these various bodies. So it's appealing to many of us that it would be nice to hold the parties responsible, including, by the way, any Ukrainians who might have been guilty of war crimes, because they usually occur on both sides in the fighting. But holding people who've conducted war crimes accountable is something that we definitely ought to try and do. The problem is we lack the mechanisms to do it in most circumstances. And if I had to bet, I would say that's likely to be the case here as well. Coming up, the quest for ideas, meanings, effects yet to come out of this war in Ukraine. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source with Steve Walt, the Harvard Scholar of International Relations. I'm fascinated by all the wise folk online, on the air, trying to frame the significance of this whole war. Adam Tooze, for example. The question posed by Vladimir Putin's invasion says Adam Tews, is whether, in this fundamental sense, the spell of the end of history has ended. The, the triumph of social democracy and mixed economies has finally been broken. Has history restarted in a tragic key, he asks, as President Macron recently put it. Are we back on the old course of military history? making the crucial decisions by war. I, I think that's, you know, probably pretty close to being right. And my guess is if you, when we look back on this, you know, 30, 40 years uh, hence, we will see this not so much as a game changer in the sense that it, it wasn't that things were moving in one direction and this event happened and it headed back in another direction. Uh, what I, I tend to see the Ukraine war as the acceleration of a number of trends that were already underway, the reemergence of great power competition, the backsliding against democracy, the tendency towards deglobalization uh, that had already begun, partly due to COVID, partly due to Trump's trade war, partly due to a number of forces elsewhere, people being more concerned, for example, about uh, China's economic role and wanting to distance themselves in in various ways. So that was all underway before the war happened. Uh, And this war, of course, has now reinforced all of those developments. Um, And again, I think we will look back on the period, you know, sort of 1993, 2016, maybe 2020, as this unusual interregnum. Uh, It was the unipolar era, and it was an interregnum in which great powers weren't at odds with each other directly, not in in a big way. You know, we fought wars. uh, We fought some stupid wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but we weren't fighting against other great powers. China stayed out of those wars. Russia stayed out of those wars. Uh, No other medium powers really got involved. And now what we're seeing is 
a war where the United States and another great power, a much weaker great power, but another great power are on opposite sides. We are not directly fighting in the war, but we are actively engaged in helping the Ukrainians fight this war. Uh, We are on opposite sides in a big way, and we haven't seen that situation in, you know, 25, 30, 30 years. And I think that is the world we are headed into. I'm sure you read Steve Kutkin, an amazingly prolific historian of Russia, especially under Stalin. Comment on his notion in Foreign Affairs the other day that the old Cold War never really stopped. And it's back in a big way with with new trimmings. For the first time in history, he says, China and the United States are great powers simultaneously. China is the main adversary. Russia is China's sidekick. Is that where we are? I think that's right. Steve Kotkin is a brilliant historian, one of the best in the world, and I think he's got this one basically 100% right. And that has an implication to it. One is that we should not get so distracted by what's happening in Ukraine and so oriented towards that problem that we neglect what is happening in other parts of the world. Um, again, the, the longer term, um, and we shouldn't neglect what needs to be done here in the United States if the next 30 or 40 years is primarily about a competition with China. I, I think one of the long-term consequences of this, of course, is that Russia will continue to get weaker in relative terms. Right? We're seeing more of a brain drain away from Russia. Russia is not going to go back to business as usual with the rest of the world when this is uh, is all settled, not anytime soon. So Russia's ability to continue to compete uh, economically with the rest of the world, I think, is going to simply decline. And as we gradually, I hope, wean ourselves also off of fossil fuels, that's going to diminish one of Russia's remaining assets. So yes, it'll be China's sidekick, but a sidekick of declining value over time. China versus the United States, or the rivalry there, is going to be the more important competition. And that's primarily a competition for influence in Asia and some other places, but primarily in Asia. And it's also a competition for the commanding heights of the world economy and the commanding heights of sort of science and technology and the digital world and all of that. And that's something you don't win by seizing territory by, uh, you know, grabbing chunks of land. You win that one in universities. You win that one in industry. uh, You win that one in international organizations that are setting the digital standards uh, that the world is going to operate by. And if we turn the war in Ukraine into the most important fulcrum of the 21st century, which I don't believe it is, uh, we're going to neglect those other issues and wake up in 2030, 2040, 2050, realizing that we missed what the really big issue was. Another example of the punditry, the framing of this war as the opening around of an endless war between democracy and autocracy. Tom Friedman in The Times, for example, Frank Fukuyama and others say that that's what we're seeing in Ukraine and it's, it's the struggle of the 21st century. This is a framework, of course, that Americans are very comfortable with. 
to view the world solely through this sort of ideological lens, the free world versus the non-free world. It goes back to you know the founding fathers in some respects. Certainly, it's part of Woodrow Wilson uh, and this idea that that you know spreading democracy around the world is really our mission. Uh, very much the way we framed the Cold War uh, as well. I personally am delighted, thrilled, very grateful that I live in a society where liberal values are still uh, widely respected. But I don't think it's a particularly useful way of framing how uh, American foreign policy is going to be conducted. First of all, as you mentioned before, many parts of the world, this just doesn't resonate with them. It's not the way they think about the problem. Uh, secondly, it exposes us constantly to trade-offs and charges of hypocrisy. Uh, you Wait a second, you're supposed to be in favor of uh, democracy over autocracies and look at all your friends who happen to be autocratic and you never seem to criticize them as well. And finally, I I think it has encouraged uh, the belief that we could make ourselves more secure by essentially crusading, by trying to export our model everywhere we could. And that has not worked particularly well over the last 15 or 20 years, uh, but also it virtually guarantees that we have trouble cooperating with uh, countries that don't share those particular values. Uh, we think of them as universal, that everyone, if given the chance to live in a democracy, would uh, willingly choose to do so. Uh, but I don't think mm. history suggests that that's the case. Uh, there's never been a moment in history when the majority of countries uh, were democratic or the majority of people in the world were living in a democracy. And finally, I guess uh, my, my own view is that our efforts to spread the gospel of democracy and freedom around the world, however well-intentioned, have unwittingly helped undermine it here at home. Among other things, it uh, helped create a big national security state. It distracted American leaders from what was happening uh, to the American middle class and in ways that helped uh, bring the rise of populism in, in a variety of ways. I think it has soured many Americans on the ability of our government to deliver successes because so many of our foreign adventures uh, turned out badly. Uh, remember that when Donald Trump ran for president in 2016, his first foreign policy speech declared that American foreign policy was a complete and total disaster. And he was running against a former, he was running against a former secretary of state in Hillary Clinton. And a lot of people nodded their heads and agreed with that. And he, and he shouted it out at Jeb Bush too about his brother's insane war in Iraq. Exactly. So job number one here is to repair, strengthen, uh, make American democracy uh, look more worthy of emulation than it does right now. Uh, and if we do that, then other countries uh, on their own timetables are going to look and see what kind of society we've created and say, well, I'd like something like that for me too. Uh, you know, and with our particular values and spin, that's, I think, a much more feasible way of trying to advance the values that we all share uh, rather than trying to impose them or nudge them or encourage them in places where even when the parties involved want to welcome them, it may generate backlashes that are deeply damaging. I believe, for example, most Ukrainians did want to move towards the West, uh, did want to uh, certainly link up economically with the European Union, eventually uh, get into NATO. And the people who were encouraging that thought this would be good for Ukraine and good for the rest of the world. And they didn't think it would be necessarily bad for Russia. 
but it turns out they were wrong or at least they miscalculated. We followed that prescription and one of the results, of course, was a war in which now Ukraine is being damaged more than anyone else. Steve, you're talking now about opinion politics in the United States and it fascinates me. Uh, the choice between, shall we say, a realist strategy of general restraint and so-called liberal interventionism with regime change always an option. How is that tension changing, being resolved in some sense after Iraq by, by the war in Ukraine? The sort of realism restraint view of the world has been a minority view for a long time, certainly since the Cold War ended. There was a lot of realism in American foreign policy, not always, but a lot of it during the Cold War because, of course, we were facing a great power rival and you had to take that seriously and you had to think in balance of power terms most uh, most of the time. After the Soviet Union disappeared, we didn't think we had to be careful anymore. We thought history was running our way, no real adversaries out there. We can impose our will or or at least try and nudge history in, in a direction that we wanted. So you got, by the time you know Trump shows up, by the time our adventures have crashed and burned in various places, you start to get an emerging body of people talking about a more restrained foreign policy, uh, one that focuses more on balances of power and less on ideological crusading. I think in the short term, the Ukraine war has kind of reversed that process. The defense of liberal values, as you've already alluded to, the number of people who want to frame this as autocracy versus democracy, et cetera. It's given that view a, a new lease on life. Uh, and certainly uh, the uh, horrible excesses uh, that Russia is engaged in in Ukraine is, you know, uh, reinforced a very Manichaean view that, you know, they're bad, we're good uh, kind of thing. But I think over time that will fade. And if you think really long and hard about how you're going to compete with China over time, framing it solely in terms of democracy uh, versus autocracy and not being really careful about setting priorities, deciding what matters and deciding what things are secondary is not going to be a winning strategy. If you're really dealing with a country that's more populous, that's going to have an economy larger than ours, that is working really hard to try and develop technological supremacy in some key areas, you can't indulge in the luxury of social engineering in lots of other parts of the world. You're going to have to make choices. So I think, you know, if you take a more medium to long-term view of this, we're going to see the, the, the need for a degree of restraint, different partnerships with other countries, different divisions of labor between us and the Europeans, for example, and uh, a more realistic view or approach to foreign policy than we have followed for the past 20, 25 years. Read the mind, please, of the blob as you famously characterize the permanent foreign policy class, Steve Walt. I wonder, listening to their echoes, is there a contingent in the permanent foreign policy class that doesn't want this war in Ukraine to end too quickly. The sense that being anti-war, end it now, is somehow to be against the Ukrainians. I don't think anyone is consciously hoping to prolong the war, that, that you know, let's do this because it's so good for our interest. But I do think there is a strand of thought, a pretty influential strand of thought, that insists that Russia must be decisively defeated here. Um, that we can't, you know, just have a, a compromise peace, uh, for example, because if Russia doesn't really pay a price here, doesn't really suffer, if Putin is not 
completely humiliated, if not overthrown, uh, he'll try something like this again. They, it's the, you know, they need to be taught a, a lesson here. I think that's a very risky thing to do when you're dealing with a nuclear armed power. You know, how much humiliation, how much damage can you inflict before they start saying, well, we can put a stop to this or we can escalate or we can make you pay a large price too. Uh, you, I think, do really want to worry about backing a nuclear armed country into a corner. Moreover, if you think longer term, a humiliated Russia that feels like it is, its position is even weaker, even less secure, even more precarious, is a Russia that will, I think, still be looking for opportunities to turn the clock back, to reverse things. What we want uh, here is not a sort of naive piece at any price by any means, but we want a situation where neither Ukraine nor Russia nor anyone else feels like they have to alter the status quo going forward. You know, we don't just want an end to the fighting in Ukraine. We want some kind of an arrangement uh, that makes uh, a round two much less likely in the future, that allows Ukraine to rebuild, that allows Ukraine to be secure, that allows Ukraine to trade with anyone it wants to, etc. But at the same time, does not make Russia feel as though Ukraine is somehow a stalking horse. You know, does not, I should say, does not encourage Russia to feel rightly or wrongly that Ukraine is a stalking horse and just the next step as part of a larger effort to divide, weaken, eventually uh, overturn the Russian government, etc. That's not, by the way, uh, going to be an easy arrangement to come up with or to negotiate, which is why I don't think the fighting is going to end anytime soon. I want to give almost the last word about the other country, Russia, to Masha Gessen, who wrote the other day, the Russian Federation, meaning the post-Soviet Russian state, is a truncated empire waging its last big imperial war, which it will eventually lose. I don't know what kind of devastation it will wreak on the world before it does, but it will lose. It may lose its last great imperial war the same way Germany lost theirs after devastating the whole world. When it does, the empire will break up. I think there will be a state of Moscow and a state of St. Petersburg. I think dozens of countries will end up existing on the largest landmass in the world. That's Masha Gessen, who has two passports, American and Russian. What do you think? I think it's unlikely. Um, it's, it's really impossible to know in advance when a regime is going to collapse internally. And that's because the beliefs of the citizens and especially their willingness to sort of rise up and try and overturn a government is private information. It's inside people's heads and it's really hard for outsiders to discern it in advance. Right? We can't get inside the heads of, of the Russian people to know. Sometimes governments do collapse without a lot of warning. The Velvet Revolutions are a good example of that. At other times, countries you think would have collapsed long ago, like North Korea, uh, seem to go on forever. So I think it's really hard to forecast when this is going to happen. I just add one other point that, you know, if Russia were to come unglued uh, completely, I think the potential for trouble there is enormous. Relations among those constituent parts uh, might be quite conflictive in the short term. And there are all those nuclear weapons scattered around what is now Russia. Who would be controlling them uh, is a real nightmare to contemplate. Steve Walt, thank you for a lifetime of learning that you share with us. It's my pleasure, Chris. Always fun talking with you. Stephen Walt is professor of international relations at Harvard and a non-resident fellow with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, 
our limited series in collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Find out more about the Institute at quincyinst.org, where you can also read A Manifesto for Restrainers by Steve Walt. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time, join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of smart, independent minded podcasts. This week, check out The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses. On the latest episode, host Tamara Abishai explores Juno, the largest classical sculpture in North America, in residence now in a brand new installation at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Tamara will take you on a breakneck tour of Greco Roman sculpture and explain why Juno, queen of the Roman gods, mattered in her moment, and why digging up our past matters to understanding our own. Listen at The Lonely Palette, 1L2Ts.com, hubspokeaudio.org, or wherever you get your podcasts.